and you're listening to Tune FM 106.9 back on air with The Takeover. The Takeover. Uh, this is the International Women's Day Feminist Reading Group Takeover of Tune FM. And my name's Jennifer Hamilton and I'm here with, on the phone actually, Laura McLaughlin. Hi, Laura. Hi, Jennifer. Hi, Kate. And and Kate Wright and um, Laura's our next guest. Uh, I, where are you living at the moment, Laura? I can't. You said you're I'm, calling from home, but I'm not sure where that is. I'm currently in Marrickville in Sydney. Ah, we might even get the Marrickville pause on air. Do you know about the Marrickville pause? It's when a plane flies over and you can't hear yourself think. Oh, so the plane goes directly <laughs> over my current house, so you may well hear. There will be a. Uh, part of the urban ecology of Sydney. Um, but Indeed. before we get to the discussion, we uh, Kate has a love song dedication that she would like to bring into the mix. Absolutely. So um, inspired by what Estrida was talking about, um, I would love to dedicate this song by Emily Wurramurra, who... Um, is an Indigenous songwriter from Groot Island in the Northern Territory. Um, the song is Nadu Guja Nama. Apologies for my translation there. Um, and it's sung entirely in the Anindil Yakwa language, um, which is Emily's native na- language. Um, my research for the past ooh, four or five years now has been working with um, Anawan people on Anawan country on the local Armadillion born and bred. So the country that grew me up and the waters that grew me up are Enowan waters. Um, And I find Emily Wurramara's song particularly beautiful um, because I'm really interested in in the Enowan language revival program. Some of my colleagues and friends are spearheading here um, and the relationship of uh, language revival to environmental movements and um, my friend Callum Clayton Dixon talks about the importance of repatriating language to country. Um, and I think that this song is a really beautiful example of repatriating language to country and to water. Um, I'll just read Emily Waramara's quote about it because she says it a lot more nicely and eloquently than I can. So it's a protest um, written in response to mining on Groot Island, um, particularly concerns about the destruction of the seabed and cultural song lines. And the track title, which is Nadiguja Nama, translates to I'm Hurting. And Emily Wormara says, I'm passionate about protecting this earth and everything living on it. This song talks about how we all come from the sea and how it's our duty to protect and cherish her and the pain we cause when we don't. The song is an anthem and a reminder to care for this beautiful country. So I think it's really a love song to a seabed. Um, and I would like to dedicate it to the Anawan country that grew me up, which is a gorge country with um, many, many rivers running through it. And yeah, maybe play the song. Awesome. So that song by Emily Wurramara coming up for you right now. You're listening to 106.9 Tune FM. Good 
that was Hyper Ballad by Bjork, I want to I wanna say. <laughs> was that right? Laura? Bjork. Bjork, awesome. Bjork is a bit umlaut, yeah. Oh, well, I... <laughs> You know, they're, they're the professionals. I'm just here to say it's Tune FM at every break. And the takeover <laughs> is the takeover. I'm going to do some technical stuff in the background. Ignore any clicking you might hear. <laughs> <laughs> meanwhile, uh, th- uh, thank you, Chelsea. Um, meanwhile, yes, you are on the International Women's Day uh, UNE Feminist Reading Group Tune FM takeover. It just rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? Um, and the Composting Feminisms... Uh, love song dedication two hours and we have on on the line in Marrickville Laura McLaughlin who 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 dedicated Björk's hyper ballad and we're going to hear why now mm. so this song so it's from um, Björk's 1995 second studio album um, Post and I when you mentioned this amazing takeover idea this song came to my head straight away but I didn't quite know why so I googled it as you know all good scholars do right and um Bjork actually talks about that what this song is about so a quote from the David Hemingway interview with Bjork she says the song is about when you're in a relationship and it's going really well and you're really happy but maybe you've given up parts of yourself to fall in love and this is a bit heavy but to fall in love and be in a relationship for a long time is like giving a lot of parts of you away because the relationship becomes more important than you as individuals. It's a bit of a tricky balance. I think everyone in a relationship needs to know not to forget themselves. And I think maybe some of that is a little bit gloomy that, you know, that being in a relationship for a long time is necessarily like giving away a lot of parts of yourself. But it did make me think about the parts of ourselves that we banish in order to be, you know, acceptable or to fit into some, whether it's a relationship or some certain kind of um, a niche. And so that song, I'm actually dedicating to all of the banished parts of ourselves that we've dropped off of the top of the mountain somewhere. Um, and maybe some of them we don't want to get back necessarily. Like I'm not saying all banished parts we want to retrieve, but just for those that we might want to go on a quest and find the cutlery or some of the car parts that we've thrown off the edge of a cliff in order to make a relationship or a job or whatever it is work. Um, yeah, so that goes out to all the banished banished things and banished parts. Wow, I love that you're throwing, your metaphor for that was throwing car parts and cutlery. Oh, no, that's from the song. As soon as I started saying that, I'm like, no, 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 that's right. That's what she says in Hyperballad. That's what she's throwing off the top of the mountain and we have to think about what what the car parts or forks are for ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, while you were speaking, Laura, I was thinking about your research. Um, and so I wanted to know if, like, so this is sort of a two-part question, to, to introduce mm-hmm. to our lovely listeners out there what your research is um, and whether or not this song relates to some of the ethnographic work you've been doing on hedgehogs in any way or if that bow is just too long. Yeah, so, um, so I'm a feminist multi-species ethnographer. So that basically means you know, like I do anthropology, but anthropology in which animals and plants are also agents um, who matter as well. Um, and I also teach environmental justice and environmental activism at UNSW and eco-criticism at NYU Sydney. In some ways, this song, I think, relates more to me as a teacher than it's 
does as a researcher. So find the kind of amazing thing, and for any, and this, you know, for all teachers out there, whatever level you're teaching at, um, that work of seeing, you know, amazing things in students, and then sometimes when a student won't quite claim the space that you just long for them to claim, and thinking about you know, what kind of ferocity might they want to claim, or what sort of vanished part of themselves might actually help them to step into that space. And I think that's where also feminism is just vital, right? To actually say, like, we've been made often to shuffle away parts of ourselves um, in order to be acceptable and maybe in order to make the contributions that we want to to the world, we might just need to get those back, even if that's a bit of a process. So I think it does more relate to me as a teacher than as a researcher, but maybe a longer bow could be drawn to research. Well, I mean, if the bow is drawn during the course of the conversation, that's great. If it's not, that's fine too. Um, but but your work is, uh, well, I mean, you, you do a lot of work, but the work that I'm most familiar with most recently is your work on hedgehogs, um, <laughs> which I want to, you know, bring in to the airwaves, bring onto the airwaves, beam out hedgehogs, um, <laughs> just because it's so great. <laughs> um but what specifically drew you to hedgehogs and what work have you been doing in the the world of hedgehogs and where? Actually, Jen, in that way that you so often do, you might have just drawn the bow for me. So, um, yeah, so hedgehogs actually it didn't start off with hedgehogs. It started off with kindness was the thing that, first of all, I was most interspecies kindness. So what is it that um, leads a human um, to actually make space for a member of another species was the thing that I cared about. So I actually spent a whole lot of time just on YouTube, actually just looking up like where were things happening that related to kindness. Um, and it was the best example that I found, which was the one I ended up following, was in the UK, um, which was shout out to Hedgehog Street, um, which you can Google, an amazing organisation that is encouraging people to bust holes in their fences um, in the UK so that hedgehogs can travel through because um, that the ways in which um, fences and walls and roads cut up environments are actually having massive impacts on hedgehog populations in the UK. And yeah, it was really that question of um, how is it that we encourage other humans to be kind to certain species? Which species do we become kind to? Which ones don't we? Um, that was really the driver and kind of still is the driver and this then takes the bow back to the collective two songs because I do think actually that kindness is one of those banished qualities quite often and one of the things that came out in my research is actually just how kind quite often we can be as humans but we don't necessarily talk about it publicly and there can be a lot of shame about talking about you know all those like gross things like love and kindness and care that actually we quietly do um, throughout our days. It's just not all that cool to talk about it. So it was actually pretty amazing to meet the private stories of the really quite lovely things people would do in order to make space for hedgehogs. Um, but they wouldn't necessarily always want other people to know about it because it can be a bit embarrassing, right, for people to know that like, actually you care about a hedgehog. This is um, so mm. interesting to me because I'm just thinking about 
love songs and what they conventionally mean and the sentimentality. And it's reminding me of being sort of 13 years old, ringing up the radio station to dedicate some love song to some poor boy I'd set my eyes on. <laughs> or, or Luke Perry, rest in peace. <laughs> but oh, at the same time, Luke. there's this different love operating all the time, you know. I think mm-hmm. it was Joan Armour Trading said, you know, love is not... Not just for not just for two people, or, or you know there are more than yeah. one kind of love. Um, and I just wanted to read a quote because I remember coming across this during my own PhD research, and it was in an article about environmental ethics, and it was arguing for love as a legitimate method to to better mm. understand and connect with the world. So it's by Cheney and Weston. I can't remember their first names. One of them is Anthony. Anyway, um, and it says, love is a mode of understanding, thinking and being that opens up the world. Love is not pathological or blind. Love is, in fact, a way of knowing. Lovers do see what others cannot see. Uh, No, lovers do see things, sorry. Um, Well, yeah, lovers do see what others cannot see, but the others are the ones who are blind. Love is a risk, an attitude that may lead in time to more knowledge of someone or something. Wholly wild possibilities. Mm. So all for the hedgehog love as a legitimate yeah, thing, not sentiment. Well, sentimental, but in a really awesome way. Yeah. And I love what you brought up in that quote, me, Kate, of the idea of that this love that may lead to more knowledge also of that which you love. And I think for me, this now is the research question that I'm quite obsessed with, which is not just celebrating love, but which kind of love? You know, is this mm. a love that actually gives more space? for the object of your love, which is something that Hedgehog Champion, so working with Hedgehog Street, um, some are just amazing at, right, of loving in ways that actually give space for what it is that hedgehogs need rather than trying to capture or keep them at home. Mm. And um, and I guess generally as humans too, you know, how can we practice ways of loving that actually mean that we get to know each other more rather than try to capture, you know, in that way we might have wanted to capture Luke Perry at one stage. Oh, I wanted to capture Luke Perry. (laughs) But also on a much darker note, you know, the recent um, domestic violence and murder of women by ex-lovers chopping people up and doing, you know, unspeakable things supposedly in the name of love. Mm. And here we go, I think it was also where feminism is vital of those sorts of questions of like how do we love and how to say like possessive modes of love and modes of love under, you know, patriarchal systems, you know, both lead to violence against humans and also violence um, against, you know, other than human lives as well. Um, and and it's like, it's still, you know, and I just also want to give a shout out here to Deb Bird Rose too, you know, who passed away um, just a few months ago and her scholarship, you know, brought love into the academy, which was so brave because mm. it's, one of those banished concepts, well, at least it was for me, you know, before I read Deb's work. And I thought, oh, you know what? Maybe I can be brave enough to also write about, you know, this this quality that really does matter and makes such a difference in the world. Oh, my goodness. There are so many things that I want to pick up on in what's just been said. But I think I also wanted to bring into the room queer theory um, and sort of non, you know, in some ways uh, a kind of, uh, a, a feminism without queer theory, so just a feminism that's about critiquing mm. patriarchy and heteronormativity without thinking about alternatives is in some ways deficient in this conversation because we're always going to be cycling around kind of 
um, normative modes of love and not thinking sort of beyond it. And I think what you've brought up here is sort of in the realm of queer theory and sort of uh, attachments that kind of go in in different ways towards objects of not mm. necessarily the opposite gender um, of all, you know, including all genders. And and one of your interlocutors uh, or the people that you read and cite in your work, Laura, is uh, Sarah Ensor on cruising. Mm. And I just wondered if you wanted to bring, mention anything in that space specifically. Mm, absolutely. Well, I think, yeah, so well brought up because I think queer theory is absolutely vital. And I think a lot of it, what it does deal with in queer theory is, you know, like how we, you know, how do we love? And Sarah Enzo's work, um, The Queer Fallout, is a, is a piece that I use a lot. And actually, also, Spencer Ecologies. I was almost going to do a whole lot of songs about Spencer and Spencer love songs, so that was a whole other realm. But, um, but yeah, to really think about how is it, how is it that we love? And, um, you know, and can we love in ways, again, that don't capture, which really does come from um, Sarah Enzo's thought about, you know, cruising as a way of, thinking about interactions in which um, you know we're not necessarily going to marry the person that we end up having a sexual interaction with or an erotic encounter with but that that actually still can be a really intense form of intimacy and this also links too to Estrida's work as well thinking about porosities that actually in terms of our larger environments we're actually cruising and being cruised all the time right having incredibly intimate encounters with our environment, which we don't even know about consciously, right? Is, you know, I'm living in this new home that has, you know, new bacteria and molds and whatever else it has in it that are now becoming part of my body that I'm interacting with that are becoming me. And um, yeah, I think queer theory has been incredibly helpful for breaking us out of ideas of love, of just being, um, you know, man and woman and monogamy. And because that's, just not how the erotic works. Well, and life, you know, sort of a lifelong attachment. I think in in Ensor, um, one of her points is that sort of to be an environmentalist, you almost have to occupy this position of like undying love for a particular, I don't know, insert species or or plot of land or national park or something. And that actually the way that humans um, encounter the non-human world is often is often more like cruising. You're sort of passing through and admiring and appreciating and breathing the air and, you know, looking at the feathers or, you know, whatever it is that isn't necessarily something that's undying and that it actually might be more useful to use um, sort of the metaphor of cruising rather than... Mm rather than marriage. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and also one thing I wanted to say, because we, we probably, we should throw to your other other dedication. One, The first dedication you're going to make, which you've backed away from, was Lady Gaga's Bad Romance. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I think that we could have had a whole parallel conversation about that. Um, that notion of a sort of, a damaged romance that's then recycled into empowerment. And this is not my reading of, of bad romance, but the the feminist music scholar Robin James, who looks at the way that resilience operates in contemporary female pop mm-hmm. music. And her reading of bad romance is is pretty sort of terrifying in that regard because it's almost like to be empowered as a woman in this moment, you sort of have to have 
an abusive relationship Mm -hmm. and that what you're bringing to this discussion um, is something quite different. So in some ways, um, although, you know, it's kind of a fun song to dance to, I I like that you've taken us in a different uh, place to the to the the Lady Gaga um, resilience Mm -hmm. feminism model that we might have ended up in (laughs) otherwise. Yeah, and that, um, so, you know, leading into this, to my second um, dedication, it does actually, and it, I mean, it links also to, to queer love and also actually a turning away from bad romance too. So, um, yeah, Lady Gaga had been my first thought. I thought, actually, how much more energy do I want to give to that, to the kind of, the you know, yeah, like you said, to the resilience um, needed to get through all the doom of bad romance. I thought, actually, I'm tired of it. I'm done. Then I thought of, um, this is the, my next dedication is um, from Kate Bush's 2005 eight studio album, Ariel. And one of the things that I just think is so cool about, and I couldn't find this interview, but Kate Bush does talk about how in her early years, her sexuality was kind of like it, she was made to be more mature than what she was really feeling sexually. And she kind of withdrew and she said, well, she had on in many periods, but she said she actually hung out and she was only listening to, um, the main music she was listening to was to the Blackbirds. And this album, Ariel, came out of her like Blackbird influence period, which I think is so cool. And the reason I chose this, because I think of it really as like a longing and also an erotics song as well. And in that way of queer erotics and it's kind of, biggest sense of not really assuming um, or prejudging what it is that is actually going to bring you that sense of aliveness um, and there's one of the lines in this song have I noticed it down um, here we go she says we long for just that something more comes out in this song and you know, we've got a little bit of an oceanic theme here but it is actually in this song it's the ocean that Kate Bush is to and I feel like there are other humans here but you know is there kind of more of a cruising dynamic you know the humans aren't named we don't well, they've got footprints but we don't really know much else about them but there's a real sense of following a longing and you know and I also don't want to just um celebrate following all longings right or you know or like let's follow them but then let's also see where they took us because I think you know having a longing doesn't necessarily mean it's always going to be good but I think maybe following it and checking out could be a good thing yeah I think, I think um yeah. what we what we can do is because it is quite a, a long track I think it's eight minutes um yeah. you've given us sort of really nice prompts to reflect on in the time that we're listening to the song what you know what types of attachment what types of affection are being explored by Kate Bush in this in this track um thanks and so much three minutes would do it if you need to cut it <laughs> well, we'll see how we'll see how we're feeling. Um, thank you so much for talking to us. This was um, Laura McLaughlin uh, speaking on the love song dedications, composting feminisms to our slot on the Tune FM takeover. Yes, and up next uh, we have the absolute journey that will be Nocturne by Kate Bush. Uh, you're listening to 106.9 Tune FM. On this midsummer. 
you're back on Tune FM 106.9 with The Takeover. Thanks so much, Chelsea. Uh, so, yes, the International Women's Day UNE Feminist Reading Group Takeover and the Composting Feminism's Love Song Dedications Two Hours. That song was dedicated by Lee Wang from the University of Sydney. Um, and she wanted to dedicate it uh, because, you know, it's this, it's this love song about um, someone who's being sold as a slave. It's actually got a quite a, like, tragic story to it. Um, but also that using flowers as like that iconic image of love and thinking, I guess, in the context of, of composting feminisms, you know, how it is that, that flowers and, and particular types of uh, non-human nature get enrolled in the service of the expression of love. Um, I have a little bit of background on that song because I guess uh, – people might not have been able to understand what the words were. Unfortunately, right next door to me uh, here at UNE, I have Dr. Isabel Tasker, who is a lecturer in Chinese. And when she heard me playing the song earlier today to to prepare for this, she was she sort of came in and was like, what are you playing and why? And um, she sent me some information. So this was originally an interlude in a popular 1960s spy movie called Visitor on the Mountains. It was based on an old Tajik dance. In order to allow the music to reveal... Um, to reveal a sense of time and space, the composer appropriately slowed down the speed of the original music in the process of adaptation. And the movie was set in northwest China in an area populated by mainly non-Han ethnic groups, uh, principally by Uyghurs. And this area is currently in the news because of um, the Chinese Communist Party's policy towards Uyghurs, who are mostly Muslims. So we have that. Thank you so much, Lee, uh, for that dedication and bringing in um, a different, another different language into this space um, and a different cultural context. So we're nearing the end of our two hours here now, Kate, mm-hmm. feeling a bit sad, wanting yeah. to like, we, Kate just said, when do we have to give it back? <laughs> <laughs> I want to keep the radio station forever. <laughs> um, and, you know, there are so many songs. We were also just sort of reflecting on, uh, I said, like love song dedications as a sort of trite idea, mm-hmm. you know, to draw on that tradition of love song dedications on the radio. Um but that it's actually, I think, sort of produced really interesting thoughts from our uh, from our participants today about what counts as love and and the different kinds of love that are available if you're sort of open to thinking about love in a more broad and interspecies sense and not sort of afraid of what that might mean. Mm. And I think it's really lovely to be dealing with music in a critical mode because music does. We, we know it awakens parts of us or intensities within us that um, aren't necessarily that easily expressed in academic language. I mean, and this is part of environmental humanities scholarship, it's part of feminist scholarship as well, is to listen to the parts that are often excluded in rationalistic patriarchal discourses and, and pay attention to those. So I think it's doing things on that level too. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it, Kate. Thank you. On that, I um, we have... So this sort of feminist environmental humanities might to sound, some people sound very um, fringy, but but the community is is quite large. And we we had a tweet in dedication from Haley Singer, who runs a reading group called Ecofeminist Fridays in Melbourne. Um, you can find them on Twitter at 
Ecofam Friday, I think. Um, and she has dedicated another Björk song. So we're, we're going back to Iceland again, Mutual Core from the album Biophilia. So that's this is a shout out to the Ecofam Friday reading group and all of their activities. Please, the, if you are in Melbourne and listening, there's so much going on down there in this space. So um, check out the, the links that we'll provide um, on the Tune FM website on Monday. And yeah, this is, uh, I'll, I'll send to you, Chelsea, now to, to send us to the song. Awesome. Yeah, that's, uh, this is coming up next is Mutual Core. And I know I got, I got told how to say this, but I will probably say it wrong again. Björk, uh, <laughs> you're on, you're listening to 106.9 Tune FM. You're back on Tune FM 106.9 with The Takeover. Thanks, Chelsea. Um, my name's Jennifer Hamilton. I'm here with Kate Wright uh, on the, the absolute twilight of the composting feminism's two-hour slot. We've actually, we've actually sort of slightly gone over time because I have one more love song dedication. Um, and this is from Sue Reed. And Sue dedicated two songs. Her work is on deep sea mining and the law and the ways in which the law sort of fails to capture the particular movements of the ocean. Um, And often, you know, the ocean is seen as kind of a a grand dumping ground for human activities and how to actually sort of revitalise the law to actually reflect what is is down there. Um, That's that's Sue's uh, rather large task. Um, but she, she she did actually dedicate a an Icelandic duo song, but we've decided that we've been to Iceland twice already, so we're actually just going to go to Lake George. And for those of you who know the drive from Sydney to Canberra, you'll know that on the, the left side of the car, if you're driving to Canberra, there's this sort of lake that disappears and reappears depending on the weather in, you know, in sort of mysterious ways. Um, and... And this particular song by Julia and the Deep Sea Sirens, Lake George, is, according to Sue Reed, um, a sex-positive ode to an ancient lake bed. And because an invitation to make, and also because she's dedicating this to make love on and with a geological anomaly, is pretty sweet. So <laughs> that is where we're leaving love song dedications today uh, with in Lake George, uh, a geological anomaly. So thank you all for listening and uh, fare thee well. Yeah, what a <laughs> what a great song to end on. Uh, yes, you're going to be hearing Lake George by Julia and the Deep Sea Sirens. You're listening to 106.9 Tune FM. If it would play. There we go. Don't you think we've been sitting on this couch under this fruit tree for long enough to and you're on Tune FM 106.9 with The Takeover. We've got two new people in the studio. Well, actually, we have a returning We have a returning face. We do. We were just discussing the fact that I now qualify as a veteran, having been on once before today. Yeah, so we've got a radio host vet and we have a new 
A newbie in all senses of the term. Mm. Awesome. So <laughs> introduce yourselves and what you're going to talk about. Okay. Well, um, my name's Sarah Lawrence. I was on just briefly before talking about philosophy. And I'm here with one of my colleagues, Dr. Megan Daniels. Would you like to tell us a little bit about what you do, Megan? Yep. Well, I come from Canada. I made the big trip across the pond uh, last June, and I teach primarily Near Eastern history, ancient Near Eastern history, and Egyptian history, and also the ancient Greek language here at UNE. Um, Also interested in uh, ancient religion as well, and ancient empires and states. Fantastic. Now, I I know that when we look at the ancient world, we're very used to talking about political organisations and military issues. It's only recently that people have become more interested in the role of women in the ancient world. And I guess one of the questions that's often asked is, how much can we actually know about what it was like to be a woman in the ancient world? Well, I think most people will be familiar with the phrase that history is written by the victors. Uh, History is also written by the upper class and primarily by men. Um, And so much of what we do know and have known uh, up until recently has largely been filtered through ancient texts written once again largely by um, upper class educated males uh, and kind of extracting what they say about women in the ancient world from those texts. Um, It's only been really since I don't know the 60s or 70s that people really started turning to um, feminist uh, histories but also archaeology is really um, uh, historians and archaeologists really started to look at the material culture material remains to understand and to see if we can see anything beyond the texts as to how uh, daily life and particularly women's life was structured in the ancient world. Do you think that there are any civilizations that you've looked at where we have more information about women than others? Um, Certainly, uh, once again, this is largely because of textual sources, but certainly the ancient Greek world. Mm -hmm. Um, But once again, um, we have to imagine the ancient Greek world made up of many uh, different city-states, some large, some small. And once again, our information is primarily comes from uh, Athens and then Sparta. And but even if you take those two city-states, we find from uh, ancient literary sources especially that women were quite different even between those two city-states. That's a really good point isn't it? Yes. We can't think of the ancient world as sort of a monolithic experience. No. And um, the situation is quite different again in Rome. Mm -hmm. As far as I know we've only got one source, one kind of textual source that they think is written by a woman. Uh, So Mm -hmm. we've got some poems by a woman called Sulpicia Mm -hmm. but scholars have looked at even that and said no I don't believe it's written by a woman. It's been written by a man. Well, it kind of leads into an interesting uh, consideration of how women, in the, the women that we do know, how they are received. We mm. talk about all those reception studies, right? And so the you know the the dialogue around Sulpicia is that well, did she actually exist or was she a man? Could yeah. she, you know? Um, and it reminds me, of course, the famous, the probably the most famous women author in the Greek world, which many people many probably know of, is is Sappho, and. Um, it's generally it's acknowledged certainly that Sappho was a woman from the island of Lesbos, mm. where we get our word lesbian from. Um, that she did compose poetry. She was very well respected in the ancient world, but even into the mo- in, in the ancient world in the modern day, so much of the discussion around who she was. Uh, there's one strain that really focuses on the kind of magnitude of her scholarship and her poetry, but another uh, strain of thought that focuses on her sexuality. And was she this mm. lewd, promiscuous woman? Was she was she a lesbian? Was she not? And this goes all the way back to, you know, 3rd, 2nd century BCE. Absolutely. And it's really interesting. Um, people will sometimes say to you, how can there be anything new to say when mm-hmm. we're looking at things that have happened thousands of years ago? But as our attitudes change, it lets us look at the evidence in different ways. So I really remember as an undergraduate reading this uh, book on 
Nero, the Emperor Nero. And the historian who'd written it said at one point with this just kind of magnificent arrogance, he said, oh, Agrippina was a silly woman and a stupid mother. Moving on. And, you know, like, it's quite hard to get that out of Tacitus if you look at it closely. There are many things you could say about Agrippina. Yes. Stupid is not one of them, I would say. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, and that reminds me, of course, I teach ancient Egyptian history, and it's the same way that, you know, it seems, it seems to, of course, be a powerful woman seemed to be treated mm. a certain way in the ancient sources. Hatshepsut is the famous Egyptian pharaoh um, who ruled in place of her younger nephew, Tutmose III. Um, and once again, text from the ni- textbook from the 1950s uh, on Egypt, kind of looking at Egyptian art and history. Same thing. Hatshepsut, you know, first she kind of did what she was supposed to do. She kind of managed affairs while her nephew was mm. too young to rule. But soon this vain and unscrupulous woman showed her true colors, you know. Yep. And once again, we have nothing in the evidence to suggest that Tutmosis III, um, you know, detested his, his, his evil aunt for, for wresting power from him or anything, right? And actually Egypt in Hatshepsut's uh, uh, period of rule. Uh, 15th century BCE entered into one of its most prosperous eras. Yeah, Yeah, it was really interesting. We get um, a lot of accusations um, in the ancient world around women poisoning people. Mm -hmm. So poisoning and incest are the two big things in Rome. You're either poisoning your husband or sleeping with your brother. And the really great thing about both those accusations is in the Roman world there is absolutely no way to disprove Mm -hmm. those accusations. How do you prove that you haven't slept with your brother? Mm-hmm. And, of course, no forensics, right? So you can't do an autopsy and work out whether someone's been poisoned or not. Yes, and poor poisoned person is now dead and can't come to your aid either. Uh, or it can't, you know. But it's it's just, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's really interesting. It's the same in the Greek world. Um, women are blamed for all sorts of things. Aspasia, um, who is the famous wife of the Athenian statesman Pericles, very, very well-respected and intelligent woman for that day, uh, blamed for starting the Peloponnesian War. That's uh, quite a lot of power to have yes. as a woman. <laughs> um, and blamed for starting an early war. Helen of Troy, of course, blamed of course. for starting the, the Trojan War famously. Um, called a liar. Uh, yeah, and it's, it's, it's interesting. Um, and going back to Sappho, one of the th- things, once again, coming back to how we look at ancient women in the ancient world is, you know, so much of the scholarship, um, as I said, coming out of the ancient world focused on whether, you know, was she a lesbian? Was she hmm. a promiscuous woman? And one of the early 19th century defenses of, St- of Sappho by a man was, was the defense was she wasn't a lewd woman. She was chaste. You know, yes. once again, this is this idea that we, this, this, and this was a scene as a defense of Sappho, that she was hmm. a chaste woman. So hmm. the most interesting thing that we could possibly know about her is how often, how often she was having sex and with whom. Yes. As basically the summation there. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yep. Yeah. All good. So if you want to throw to a song, we can. Yeah, that'd be fantastic. Tightrope, anything to say or is it just your fave? Look, I think Janelle Monae is a a really interesting artist. I like her a lot. This song is so infectiously danceable. Um, But I think she also does some really interesting things with with gender and with assumptions around femininity in the way she presents herself as well as her music. Awesome. Can't wait to hear it. This is Tightrope by Janelle Monet. You're listening to The Takeover on Tune FM 106.9. You're back on the air with The Takeover on Tune FM 106.9. 
All right. Megan and Sarah, still speaking to you from the ancient world here on uh, on uh, Tune FM. So uh, that was Christine and the Queens. Uh, that was, uh, you know, going off our discussion of women in the ancient world, uh, especially women like Sappho, who really crossed a number of boundaries and who made people uncomfortable. I thought Christine and the Queens would be a good uh, a, a good uh, artist to feature. Um, I'm quoting from the from an interview on daysdigital.com. Uh, this is the moniker uh, from, for the artist uh, Halois Le Tessier. She's from France, and her name, Christine and the Queens, is a persona she describes as a quote-unquote survival technique against the boxes in which we put each other and the false options we get given by society and she writes further down in this article my first song it which you just heard was about wanting to have a I'll insert a male member just in order to have an easier life. I wrote it when I got expelled from drama school in Lyon seven years ago because I put on my own play. My teachers allowed boys to do stage directing but told girls they had to learn about acting first. Those teachers are still lecturing today. Now I would write it. I I wouldn't write it. I'd rather stay a woman and fight and try to control the male gaze by wearing unsexualized suits and speaking about my own desire without worrying about being desirable in someone else's terms. So I think that fits nicely with what we were talking about in the ancient world, how women are portrayed uh, and put in a box not only by their own society but also by modern scholarship how how they're received absolutely absolutely and you mentioned before that the experience of being a woman though could vary a lot depending on where you lived even within the same basic civilization so for instance you brought up Athens and Sparta as two contrasting examples of a place where it was very different Mm -hmm. being a woman in either city yeah, once again, most, like I said, most of our information comes from literary sources, but what we seem to know about Athens is that, quote-unquote, respectable middle upper or upper-class women, uh, their place was in the home, essentially. Mm-hmm. Uh, their, their role was raising children and weaving, um, and, um, and very, they didn't have much exposure to the outside world. The, certainly, there, we have images uh, on pots, painted on pots, of women gathering at the water fountain. Mm-hmm. So that was one of their daily activities, was to go fetch water, meet with other women, um, another big activity that women participated in and has been uh, the subject of an earlier monograph, actually, by one of our other professors at UNE, uh, Matthew Dillon, is, mm-hmm. of course, uh, their role in ritual and cult mm-hmm. as well in the ancient world. Uh, cult not being in the modern sense, but in the, in the ancient sense of being part of um, worship of various uh, deities. Uh, women had huge roles uh, in cult as priestesses and, and other types of temple servants mm-hmm. in, and, in Athens. And that's such a central thing, isn't it, in, yeah. in civic life? And I often think about weaving, and it's easy to think about weaving as this kind of genteel little occupation, mm-hmm. but it was incredibly demanding, um, mm-hmm. very difficult technically and very hard physical work because you're weaving these enormous pieces of cloth. Yes. Like uh, the material in a man's toga at Rome was kind of ridiculous and it was desi- you wanted your cloth to be really fine. Mm-hmm. And there's a fantastic bit in um, the work of Epicurean philosophy by Lucretius where he's talking about how the world developed and how human humanity learnt to do things and li- to live together. And he said, now weaving's really complicated, so we know that men created it and then they taught it to women. Sounds like Christine and the Queens and her acting, yes, her absolutely. experience in acting school. Yeah. Okay, so if that's what life was like in Athens for women, how about Sparta? 
Well, Sparta was seen, uh, was looked askance at by many other uh, Greek authors, male authors. Um, women seemed to have a lot more freedom in Sparta. Um, they exercised outdoors naked with the men. They participated mm-hmm. in sports. They could own land. This is something that females in most parts, other parts of the ancient world in general could not do. They could receive inheritances. It's estimated that by the 4th century BCE, uh, Spartan women owned uh, about 40% of land. And once again, mm. these are upper class women. Uh, Sparta was a very divided society between um, the Spartans, between the other people kind of dwelling with them, and then between their slaves, which they called the helots. Mm. Um, so we have to remember that the, the women we're talking about themselves are upper, or generally seem to be upper class. Um, but they, they certainly were looked on askance, but I mean, it's, the issue has been raised that once again, although they had more freedom, much of it seemed to be built into the ideology of Sparta in general, the, the, the Spartan state that everyone was, was trying, or that, that men and women uh, existed to produce uh, strong warriors. And women, in a sense, I don't, I don't, I don't like the term baby-making machines, but certainly that, 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 that has been suggested for, for women in Sparta, even as they seem to have more, much more power um, well, and freedom. Well, it's even suggested, isn't it, that one of the, the ideas about having them exercise naked in public is that it inspires men to get married. <laughs> Actually, I haven't heard that, yeah. that one. Um, yes, and there's, there's certainly a lot, we, we know a lot of also about the, the marriage ceremony and how and how. Uh, Spartan women and men were, were supposed to to court and eventually marry as well, um, and they were there. I mean, we Plutarch recorded a whole book on women saying sayings from Spartans and specifically Spartan women. They were known for their wit and for their education as well. Um, it ties into one more uh, cultural group in the ancient world I'll mention that we do know something about, and that once again many Greeks looked askance at as the Etruscans. Mm. Uh, mm. And a lot of this is known not from one, not f- so much from text, but from archaeology, um, from from rich tombs, um, from sculptures that show women uh, in in the Etruscan world. This is the area north of Rome mm. called Etruria. We get our modern name Tuscany from it. Um, who who seem to have uh, almost equal status to men in some respects uh, who seem to be recorded on economic, have their names recorded in economic transactions to show that they had much more freedom. So actually, um, and, and we know less textually, but we know uh, a lot about them, as I said, archaeologically from tomb sources. Yeah, and in that region, we certainly see um, much later that flow into Rome, mm-hmm. that there's a much stronger sense of um, female agency when it comes to things like business. There are limits on that Mm -hmm. so for most of roman history if you're a woman and you want to undertake financial activity you've got to have a man who sort of sanctions that financial activity but we know about female business owners we know about female patrons who were very powerful and there's a spectacular letter from cicero a roman politician in the last century bce when this is after the death of julius caesar and they've met to discuss what's gone wrong with the way it's been played in society and, and politics. And there's a woman called Sempronia present. And Cicero writes that at a certain point, Sempronia just breaks up the conversation and says, you've mishandled it. We're going to have to go back to first base. We need to change this bill that's being put before Parliament. Now, I will get this bill changed. And so this is a woman who's just saying, I'm going to get this bill changed. You men didn't know what you were doing and you need to get your act together. And the best part of this story, from my point of view, is that Cicero writes to his correspondent, I was really annoyed with her, but I couldn't say anything. So (laughs) even though she was driving him crazy, she obviously was in a position of sufficient authority. She had a sufficient social status that Cicero felt he just had to shut up and put up. 
interesting. I was going to ask, how do, how do we get a sense of how Cicero kind of felt about this? Um, and do you think this reminded me of watching the show Rome, the, yes. the, the miniseries? I mean, do you think that women were kind of ac- accurately portrayed? Because certainly um, there was a lot of powerful women who weren't just scheming in the background but were actually in positions of power and certainly changed the course of history. Mm, I think there was probably slightly less kinky sex than is suggested (laughs) in Rome um, and and probably slightly less sleeping with your brother. But other than that, look, I think the HBO series Rome is kind of genius in the way that it weaves together things we do know and things that we can guess at. And one of the points it does make, and I think you're really right here, is the fact that women are not only involved, but to a certain extent they expect to be involved. Mm. And adding the caveat that you've added before, Megan, which is we're talking here about elite, rich, powerful women. Mm -hmm. And I'd also like to uh, just add one more thing. I mean, we talked about Athenian society as well. Um, And for those of you, I mean, and I did make it certainly sound that women were closeted, but um, uh, I'm going to direct you to a male source, but the the playwright Aristophanes, the way that women are depicted in his plays have they have a lot of power, a lot of influence, and they in a, they step in and uh, in many comical ways change things for better and for worse in, in Athenian society. Alrighty, that's uh, that's the end of this segment. Yep. Um, so we'll say goodbye now and leave you with uh, "Week in a Box" uh, by by and from the soundtrack of Hedwig and the Angry Inch. Thanks, Chelsea. <laughs> no worries. Thank you. You're listening to the Takeover on 106.9. See you mm-hmm. after this song. You're listening to 106.9 Tune FM uh, on the air with an old favourite from today. Yes, hi, I'm back. It's Christina from Sociology at UNE. And I'm here just to round out the session for um, this last session for the Tune Takeover for International Women's Day and the Feminist Reading Group here at UNE. Um, and I'm here with a really great friend of mine. I'm so glad she could be with us this afternoon. Um, Gabe Journey Jones. So she's an African American um, and Maori woman who's currently living in Bega. Um, I'm just trying to find her bio. Let's be honest. <laughs> yeah, hmm. that's all right. Anyway, hi Gabe. While while I'm just scrolling through my Facebook here like a noob, can you <laughs> um, welcome to the program and um, happy Thank International you. Women's Day? Thank you. Happy International Women's Day to you all and all the listeners. Thank Very you. exciting to be connecting regional area to regional area. Yes, yes, that's right, because you're living in Bega at the moment, aren't you? And then before that, you're mm. in Thoreau? Yeah. Outside Wollongong? Yeah, so it's great that's to have it, all yeah. these different um, yeah, women from all parts of the, well, at least all parts of the East Coast, maybe. Country. Or the, yeah. Yeah, broadly the East Coast. Um, can you maybe tell us a bit about your artistic practice? Because I know that you're a poet and also um, a leader of drum circles and creative healing practices and things like that. Yes, essentially I got into poetry, spoken word poetry, from 1990s hip-hop. Strong black women speaking about life, speaking about how they want life to be, people like Queen Latifah, MC Light, that sort of thing. Yeah. And I sort of, as I got older, friends said, why don't you take the music out of the rap and just leave the poetry there and perform that? And which, 
yeah, which is sort of how I got into spoken word poetry by taking the music out and being very clear with the lyrics. Um, so yeah, very inspired by the early '90s women in hip hop and um, yeah, just a freestyle form of saying what you want. Um, accessible poetry, I suppose it is today more than um, page poetry. However, you know, I have put a lot of those lyrics down as page poetry into my book Spoken Medicine and just use that as a teaching tool really. Yeah, wow. So you're doing so you're doing all kinds of um you know that kind of is it more freeform poetry or like a poetry that's kind of yes. um post structuralist, I guess. So I mean I've come from in my early education we did a lot of Shakespearean sonnets and um, you know, mm-hmm. we did John Donne and all those guys and they're really you know, they really have strict forms in the way that they write and the way that they um, they express themselves through through words. So I guess your, you know, part of, part of your practice is that is deconstructing those kind of canonical structures and, um, you know, making that's, forms that's that express right. express your well, own I history. Like, yeah, I feel that like all forms of creative expression are valid. However, through um, my career as a social worker and community development worker um, in the New South Wales, um, I found that using things with young people using words in the form of poetry and rap with young people was a really good way to help them express what's going on and to tell their stories and so I basically moved from the human services um, using a little bit of creative um, therapy I guess arts therapy to going full-time just last year after a 20-year social work career um, into uh, full-time poetry and percussion so that means I'm teaching like today I went down to the Women's Resource Centre in Bega and we had a drum circle and many women there had never drummed before and it just gives people who, who wouldn't normally have a chance to learn that sort of um, art. It's a freestyle form, so there's no right or wrong. You just pick up a drum and then you just get involved and, and get involved with the circle. So, yeah, it's pretty much grassroots community building and quite often words aren't even required unless... You get because it is International Women's Day, so there's a lot of hooping and hollering as well. Usually, with these things. <laughs> so it sounds like um, the drum circles are really. I was reading an article the other day that was talking about um, the sort of the lack of people that people, in a way, don't have hobbies in the way that we used to. That because of the professionalization of so many um, artistic endeavors, that you you know people just don't paint for pleasure anymore. Or they don't, you know, they can't just say they play the violin. They say, oh, I play in a band and I play in pubs, or you know. Um, you know, you have there's sort of less willingness to sort of um, to try things that you aren't immediately good at or that you haven't been trained at. Um, that's right. Well, I think like going through. Oh, sorry. No, no, it's right. Yep. Well, you just sort of reminded me going through the school system in the 80s, and all, all I wanted to do was become a professional drummer, and everyone was like, "You can't make a living out of drummer drumming. You can't support yourself." And so, like that was something I was very passionate about. Now, almost 50 years on, that's what I'm doing, which is great. Um, but yeah, there's, there, it's a lack of opportunity for people to just drop in and do something without, like, say, paying a one-term deposit to, to join in and then find out they don't like it and then that money's gone. So there's, there's a lot of um, issues around financial accessibility for the arts and as we are talking about International Women's Day, um, for women, for mothers to actually attend things and their children allowed to hang out in the background or they've got to sort of pay to attend something and then pay a babysitter which these days could be up to $30, $40 an hour, um, which is great because we do need to pay, you know, for care as much as we'd pay 
you know, for someone to come and repair the fridge or even not more to well, actually that's thing, have our it? children looked after. Because I think that, mm. that it's, a, it's that, that kind of, you know, that horrific irony of the, the feminisation of care work. Um, has sort of mm. caught, put mothers in this bind, right, where you need to find good care. You know, obviously every every mother, you know, if you're going to leave your children with someone, you want to be able to trust them and that they're well-trained, they know what they're doing. But then we also undervalue mm-hmm. that work financially and, and culturally as well. Absolutely. So women are kind Absolutely. of caught like in that in that political bind of, you know, recognising the work of other um, feminised industries like like childcare. But actually, mm-hmm. um, you know, the burden of... of, of um, uh, you know, of making those politics a reality for care work industry workers is that women often have to pay, you know, out of their own pocket. Um, and so that mm-hmm. sort of harms their opportunities in other areas. So if you can't, if you can't arrange, you know, um, a responsible babysitter at the right time, then it's really difficult to get away to go drumming or, you know, to pursue um, right. identities and outside your primary care identity. Yes, and it basically makes things like accessing the arts a luxury because at the... It, First of all, people, women have to make the money to pay the rent and pay the bills and everything. And if you have time on top of that, then you can, you know, if you have time and money and a carer, you can, as a, as a mother, go out and do something. So it's, I'm very passionate about what happens for um, parents. It's not just mothers, it's, you know, parents who, or especially single parents trying to access creative communities. And I'm really passionate about um, making creative communities free almost. It's like that sense of when free education but like free creative communities where we're building it building it together and the flip side of that is also honoring the artists who have put their skill and time and effort into actually running something so it is quite a hard yeah it's a bit of a dilemma really. yeah well yeah because everyone i mean you the um i guess the infrastructure has to come from somewhere as well you know like um i think you're talking about there was a great place in bega that had been read that had been redeveloped as a community art space Yes, it's being run um, by an amazing woman called Casey Hill. It's called the Fun House, and they try to they they try to offer things that are financially accessible, and they try to they invite the community. They they're like, here is a space, please come and use it. I look at their Facebook page quite often. They're saying, you know, calling out for people to use the space, and there's things like a a um, group that does called Boomerang Bags. They make um, shopping bags for. They, they sew shopping bags out of recycled material. So, yeah, and there's a da- there are dance groups that meet there and there's all sorts of arts groups that that try to access the space. So, yeah, we need spaces as much as we need the people to run them, the skills to run them. Yeah, exactly. Well, it's, it's fantastic. And it's also, I think it's a great... Um, I mean, this actually, this takeover today uh, is a bit... A, a bit um, a, a bit in the same way, I guess, because um, Tune FM is something that I've actually never really, um, to my great shame, engaged with very much before um, Before one of the members of the reading group, um, Felicity Joseph, who was on here earlier today, um, before Felicity suggested we do a, a radio takeover for Women's Day, I'd never even thought of it. Um, because, you know, mm. I've never done any radio before. I've never, I've done a couple of radio interviews, but I've never um, been trained in it or never really thought it was, you know, a space that I was very familiar with. I was familiar with it all. Mm. Um, and during community the community co- run. Yeah, exactly. And it's, um, it's a, it's a space that's actually, um, very flexible and, you know, um, has provided us with a huge, a huge amount of variety in terms of the content that we've had today. And we've had, we, mm. like, we've donated our time as, as speakers, but because the tune infrastructure is here and we've got some amazing volunteers in the studio, I should actually, I should have done this several times already today. Shout but, out. Um, yeah. yeah, to shout out to Chelsea and Zoe for mm. helping us so much. Um, over the course of the day, we could not have done it without you. Um, otherwise, we, I think as academics, would have just talked, talked everyone to, to sleep probably um, <laughs> without the wind ups. But um, 
but yeah, I mean, this space, like we haven't, you know, has cost us on the day nothing except our time, you wow. know. So, um, yeah. and it's you've a, got the potential to reach out to a lot of people. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and so it's a really, it's really important to remember, I guess, that you don't always need money, and you don't always need, or just, I mean, you need infrastructure money. You know, there's always cost there, but. Um, as an individual, you know, you can always um, find finding that space. You know, finding the, the bigger community arts centre or um, finding spaces like Tune in Armadale here are really critical. And you don't need a lot of money. And you don't need a lot of. Um, you don't need to know everything yourself when you go in. Like you can always find helpful, friendly faces like um, like the volunteers here, and you know, and like you in Bega to teach people. Well, not yeah, to teach people or to invite people to kind of experience. Um, drumming for the first time in a way that isn't really judgy and that you don't have to be graded at the first mm-hmm. time or, you know, that idea of natural rhythm and if you don't have natural rhythm, then you shouldn't do it, you know, or no one should listen and to you. No, yeah, and that really puts people off and, and I find that the whole point of connecting creativity, creatively with others is to then return and create, connect back with yourself. So, yeah, right. like a circle. Yeah, and actually that. One of the poems I wanted to share today was called Artist Circles. I don't know if it's the time to share it now in the middle of the thing or... If you want. No. Uh, we're we're closing in on four o'clock very fast, so... Oh, okay. That's well, all right. Well, I think this, is, this one... Oh, yeah. Yep, go for okay. it. Go, Gabe. We'd okay, love to hear great. it. Great. Shout out to all the artists out there. Artist Circles. Concentric rhythms. We dance our storylines. We are five verses speaking our heart truths in ageless sacred spaces, gathering of kinswomen, holding the energy, lighting the fire of creative expression. Here we honour, here we reclaim our creativity, shape-shifting from doing to being, drummer to musician, poet to writer, songwriter to singer. Thank you, my sisters. Thank you so much, Gabe. That was yeah. fantastic. Well, thank you for the day. I have tuned in throughout the day and listened to bits and pieces, and it's been awesome having hearing you all take over. So, oh, thanks, yeah. Gabe. That's really lovely. It's lovely to hear. I hope it happens again. Yeah, definitely. We'd love to have we'd love to have you got you and all the other guests that we've had on today. We'd love to have you guys on in um, different segments. I'm going to um, back introduce you because I finally found your profile. <laughs> so, as we say goodbye okay. to Gabe Jenny Jones, who's um, a dear friend of mine who's currently living in Bega. Um, I'm just going to tell you a little bit about her and her creative practice. Um, so she's an out and proud intersectional black, uh, sorry, yes, out and proud black intersectional feminist lesbian. You're a full-time poet and percussionist, performer and teacher, casual academic in human services, and you're passionate about community development, especially in the arts, and you're the mother of two gorgeous children. So thank you so much for, having, uh, for making the time to speak with us today, Gabe. Thank you for having me on, and, yeah, let's... Uh Create those spaces where we, it's, everyone can be included in creativity. Exactly, exactly. What a great message to end All on. Right. Thanks so much, Gabe. Cheers. Happy Wednesday. Right. See you later. Bye. Bye. No worries. And while I queue up the next song, that Spotify has been uh, really giving it to me today uh, in in the terms of technological difficulties. Um, no, it's been it's been great to have um, all the amazing women that we've had on today talking about so many different things. Um, such a great you know bunch of content, and I've been here all day, and I think I've probably walked away with so much more knowledge in in so many areas um, that I I really I really wasn't expecting you know <laughs> um, I kind of came in today and 
suddenly it was a takeover. It was an actual takeover situation for me because I was completely unprepared. But no, it's been completely awesome um, all day for for these guys to come in. And we we certainly hope they come back. And Yeah, we would love to. We've had such a great time. Everyone's (laughs) like on a radio high right now. Everyone's being like, that was so awesome. Yeah, it, it is actually super awesome to be on air. And it's like, it's just a crazy experience as well because you never when you're a kid you hear the radio and you're like that'll never be me yeah it was like the person in the little box you know or like coming out of your computer it's like exactly it seems like something very far away from what i do in my regular life so this has been yeah yeah really exciting so um i've tried to uh inception style plan in their heads all day that they should come back and have regular segments if that's something you'd like we're already we're already plotting that <laughs> so that's something it's an open like, secret that we're, <laughs> that we're openly plotting to have uh, uh, a feminist segment more often. So, yeah, we'd love to. No worries. We, we can't wait to have you back. Uh, coming up next, we have Raise Hell by Dorothy. So excited. You've been listening to The Takeover all day today on Tune FM 106.9. See you in a bit. <laughs> 